what advice would you give an aspiring investor that's about 12 months behind you? Start raising money right away. Start mm-hmm. talking to people, building that up. Because the thing is too, when you're raising money with people, they're not going to just write you a check right then and there. You have mm-hmm. to build a relationship with them over months. So you have to build that relationship with them. Also, with brokers, these brokers are getting calls all the time. If you really want to get in front of a product, you need to go there and meet them in person and take them to lunch and walk some properties with them. And then lastly, just look at everything with many different lenses and be creative because you're, this is a very competitive space and you got to set yourself apart. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. This is episode number 107 and part of our first deal series. Today, I talk with Jonathan Barr, who recently closed on a 72-unit apartment complex in Norman, Oklahoma for $3.2 million. It's a C-class asset and a B-class location. So far, so good. And now, this show. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. Very excited for today's show. It's the third of our first deal episodes, and we have Jonathan Barr on with us today, who's recently closed on a 71-unit apartment complex, soon to be a 72-unit in Norman, Oklahoma. So a little bit about Jonathan. He started his real estate career in the 2009 recession. He's acquired over 400 residential flips in the very competitive Los Angeles market. During that time, he was also involved in ground-up developments and repositioning of multifamily buildings. Also during the, the last 10 years, he's created $22 million in profits for his investors with an average annual return of 38%. We'll get into a lot more of his bio. His full bio is going to be in the show notes. But that said, JB, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Doing well. Good to talk to you again. So, yeah, always yeah. good. Always good. So let's let's start with this. Let's start with your background. Uh, give us you know idea of you know who you are, where you come from, and you know what what got you to where we are today. Sure. Um, grew up in a real estate family, so it's basically in my blood. My mom's office was basically my daycare. And after the last recession, the Great Recession, uh, couldn't find a job. My mom said, "Come work for us." But you know who wants to work for their parents? So I was a bit Not reluctant. Yeah. yeah, but I, I went ahead. And, I mean, you're when you're broke, you you have to do things you don't want to do. Um, mm-hmm. And went to work for them. We started. They had some investor connections, and they were kind of rebuilding their business because they took a big hit during mm-hmm. the last recession. And so we started going to foreclosure auctions, buying REOs, short sales probates, you name mm-hmm. it. We were buying seven, eight homes a month at one point. And I was kind of orchestrating that, having two people bidding at the courthouse steps, uh, two people looking at the properties. And and we did about 400 in the, those 10 years. Mm-hmm. Eventually, those flips dried up. We got into some ground up development, also had a small portfolio of two to four unit mm-hmm properties in LA and I, I did the management leasing for that. So I've kind of been in the trenches and a little over a year ago, bought our first multifamily building 
a larger multifamily building in mm-hmm. Kansas City and then just closed on the 71 unit about five months ago in Oklahoma City in the city of Norman, which is within the metro and just trying to do more of that. Keep yeah. that going. You know, I mean, recessions, you know, it's we, we all know that the Great Recession really hit real estate hard. And I think, you know, Los Angeles, I was living in San Diego at the time, not too far away, but yep. uh, I think most people know what happened to the housing market. Um, so it sounds like you were able to take advantage of that whole wave that of huge. foreclosures that came through. I mean, what, what was that? What was that market like? Was, were there a lot of other investors? Was it super competitive or? That's a thing. I think a lot of people were scared at the beginning that there, mm-hmm. when we were going to the auctions, it was like 10 people there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, later that would change. Eventually it was like a hundred people there, but at the yep. beginning that wasn't much. Deals are falling on my lap. We didn't have enough money to even buy these deals. Like mm-hmm. there was so many deals at such good, I'll give you an example. One of the first deals we bought, I bought for 145,000 and sold it for 306, 36 days later. Oh my gosh. Wow. And did you do and, how much, how much work did you guys do to that? Probably put like 10,000. It was vacant too. So we didn't oh have gosh. to like evict yeah. anyone or do anything like that. But it, those are the kinds of deals that we were doing left and right. And that same house is probably worth seven fifty now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we bought our second investment property in 2009, you know, and it was it was one that uh, the previous owner bought at the peak, um, and this this is you know San Diego County. It's yeah. at the peak they paid I think four fifty five for it. So I think they they bought it in like two thousand five two thousand six time yeah. frame, and we picked it up for three hundred and five thousand. You know, so it was yeah. you know it, it was a good deal for us. Um, hard to time the bottom, but it's a little bit more. You bought anything between 2009 and 2013, you're doing yep. amazing. <laughs> you know, and it it did extremely well. Now, what, one thing that was hard for us is getting that thing to cash flow, but we ended up selling, you know, back up at, uh, you know, 450 a couple of years later. But I mean, it just, you know, it's, it's something that I think a lot of people realize, but like you said, I think people are, people get scared at that time. You know, the housing market crashes and there, there's a lot of fear, you know, I think the fear is part of what makes the market crash and part of what keeps the crash going. But yeah, you guys got in and you started started buying stuff. Um, yeah. Now, now you, you talked about the the money for it. Where where did you guys did you guys raise money for these purchases or or how did you guys finance fund and purchase? Yeah. Funds? So they had some previous partners that they had worked with before that basically gave us some seed money that we split. Uh, they would give us all the money for the deal. We would go to the auctions, buy it with that cash. And then we would mm-hmm. split the profits from there, basically 50, mm-hmm. 50. Okay. But at one point we were able to build up enough of our own capital and we had a hard money lender that would basically lend us the money at pretty good rates for hard money, like a week later. So we were mm-hmm. kind of just recycling, not a whole lot of money, but doing a lot with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing that I've always found incredible, you know, the, the power of money, you can use the same dollar, recycle it and, and keep on keeping on essentially with, with a lot that you do. Um, yeah. So you did that for, for roughly 10 years. Um, what got you, what made you decide to get into multifamily? Well, I, I could back up a little bit. So during sure. 2011, 12, I bought three duplexes mm-hmm. in amazing areas of LA and then 10 years later, they had appreciated 400%. And I was mm-hmm. looking at my equity on that property, on those properties, I was making probably 3% on the actual equity of the property. Mm-hmm. I was like, I know I could do better than this. This is basically like, yeah, like a Savings mutual account. fund. Yeah. yeah. 
So I started looking in LA and at like 10 units, but the thing about LA is we have rent control mm-hmm. and to get a, a tenant out of a rent control building, that's paying a thousand dollars for a $2,500 a month unit. You have to pay them 50 grand to leave. Mm-hmm. So you multiply that by 10, that's half a million dollars just to get everyone out of a building. And then you have to, because there a lot of these buildings were built in the 20s, 30s, you have to gut them and basically rebuild them. So you put another half a million dollars and there's just a ton of, and then permitting in LA is really challenging. So a ton of head damage, or I could go out of state and buy something that's mostly turnkey and get about the same return without any of that head damage. And it was yeah. just like an easy decision for me. And yeah, so and that, that, that legislation, <laughs> you know, I sold, I happened to sell that, uh, that condo that we bought um, about a year before that legislation came out, but we had one single tenant who was there for eight years. And when we, when I started looking at the details of that legislation and thought, Oh my God, I'm so glad we sold when we did because yeah. you know, 50,000, that, that, that puts a big chunk into your profit margin. If you've got to pay somebody $50,000 to move out prior to that law, 60 day notice, I just had to give her 60 day notice. Yeah. In LA, we always had that rent control and then before that. So it was, it was always a common thing, but I mean, it's also a math problem at the end of the day. It's like, okay, I'm going to pay this person 50 grand. I'm going to put another 30 into it and I'm going to get $1,100 more a month. So your return on that's probably close to 20%, you know, but to get there, it, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. And a lot of times when these sell, these sellers know that you can up the rent a lot. So they'll try to get you to pay for it to them, you know, Um, which is not really fair because you have to do a lot of work to get there. And yeah, so went out of state and that first asset we bought in Kansas city has been performing really well, beating projections. And Mm -hmm. the Oklahoma city one is now beating projections by 67%. So Mm -hmm. not only are we doing it, but we're basically crushing it. Nice. Nice. So let's, let's talk about that deal in, in particular. Sure. First, let's, let's talk about uh, the team that you assembled for, for the, the Norman deal. Yeah. Who did you have involved with you and, and what was that process like getting, getting the right people in line? Yeah. So basically when we were first looking into Oklahoma city, we started contacting property managers first. Mm-hmm. Uh, we connected with a property manager that's also operator in the area and has about a thousand units under ownership and management. He knew about the deal. Uh, we also connected with the broker separately that had control of the deal but wouldn't, didn't want to work with us because she didn't know who we were and wanted to make sure she worked with someone that could close. Mm-hmm. Um, but the broker had done a deal with this property manager before. So he kind of vouched for us. And because he vouched for us, she was willing to work with us at that, that point. It just was a good match because he had complexes nearby so we could share staff and resources. Mm-hmm. He's about our age. He's building his business. We're trying to build our business. There was just a lot of synergies there that really worked well for us. Mm-hmm. And we may even partner with him on deals in the future. Maybe not. Who knows? The right opportunity would have to come up for that to work. So the property manager was was key finding the right broker that was willing to work with us that basically brought us a deal off market. And then also uh, making sure we had the property uh, inspector there Mm -hmm. that gave us a lot of vendor contacts and, and all that. So I would say property manager 
for yeah. the team was key. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably the most essential person on your team, you know, outside of, outside of your, your, your partnership, you know, the, the general partners, that, yeah. that is by far the most important person on your team. And it sounded like that property manager basically was the catalyst for the deal. They yep. vouched for you with the brokers. And I, I think every aspiring investor looks at the broker. The broker's a big hurdle. Everybody's got to get over, you know, a set of hurdles just to, just to be able to talk to brokers. And that property manager vouching for you gave you that in. So, yeah. Yeah. And then the other person on my team is obviously my partner, my brother, and I had worked with him in the previous business for Mm -hmm. about eight years. So I know how he works. He's my brother. I could trust Mm -hmm. them with my life. So I, I, that's the good thing about working with family is you could trust them. I mean, not everyone has family that could trust, but most people have family they, they could trust. And you know them very well. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, you you know where you can trust them. But they uh, don't, and they don't give, and they'll give it to you straight too, yeah. you know, yeah. which is important. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is important. You're not holding punches when, when there's, there's something, you know, glaringly obvious, you know, pointing out the elephant in the room. Sometimes family members are really good at that. So, yeah. um, so let, let's talk specifically about the deal, 71 units. So tell me about the, the process of underwriting, analyzing, getting it under contract. So I could back up a little bit. The mm-hmm. property manager actually had the deal under contract mm-hmm. before COVID, canceled because of COVID. And this same seller had another 150, 140 unit deal that they were trying to sell as a package. Mm-hmm. So separate transactions, but he bought the other one and we bought this one at the same time and basically close around mm-hmm. the same day or so. So that's kind of was the catalyst mm-hmm. for that. So it, it made the seller was only going to sell it if he could sell both of them both. at the same okay. time. Okay. So this, this was kind of a package deal where you and the property manager got together. I'll buy this one. You buy that one. You yeah. Let's do this. Okay. Yeah. We didn't like commingle any funds or anything. It was mm-hmm. completely separate transactions just yep. from the same seller. Okay. Yep. All right. Good. Good. Now, as far as uh, capital raise, you know, what, what was the purchase price and and what what did the loan look like and how much capital did you guys have to raise for it? Yeah. Um, so we purchased it for three point two million, mm-hmm. about forty five a door. Mm-hmm. Uh, the average rents were about six hundred twenty six, which mm-hmm. was like a price to income ratio of about one point four, and we we try to usually be in uh, about one three one four price to income ratio. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that's what it seems like those deals are working out for for us. Mm-hmm. The property was in pretty good shape. They had new windows. We were just going to tidy up some of the outside, do new mm-hmm. signing, branding, fix some like a little bit of drainage stuff, that that kind of stuff. So we're only putting about 150000 into the exterior. Mm-hmm. So we put 25% down was the loan. We raised... 150,000 in capex and about another 75,000 in reserves so the mm-hmm. total raise was a million 150,000 mm-hmm. and most of that money actually came from a 1031 from a property that I sold in LA and a property that my brother sold in LA and then the rest came from two friends and I think part of the mistake we made on the deal was not opening it out to outside of our network sooner because we did struggle to raise money from other people on the first deal just because we were in the height of covid it was our first larger deal. They kind of want to see what we're doing. A lot of the people, our investors are from LA and the thought of going to 
buying real estate in Oklahoma seemed very foreign to them. So getting them used to that idea was challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the next time around was was going to be will be a lot easier. But I think I was a little overconfident on our ability to raise on that first deal. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, you, you got there, and it sounds like you said you you would have you would have been a little more active on the money raising earlier on had you to, to do it over again, right? Yeah, I and maybe I was a little bit lazy because I knew we had the funds to do it ourselves if we had to. So, okay. but I could have made more of an effort early yeah. on. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things, you know, I think necessity drives a lot of stuff, you know, and yeah, um, yeah, good problem to have, you know, knowing you have enough money to cover the entire, you know, the entire um, cost to close and renovation budget is, is a good place to be, but But the sense of urgency is maybe not as much there, even though it is there, because if you spend all your money on one deal, then you have no money for future deals for next deals. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that totally. So now the 1031 exchange, how how smooth was that process? I haven't talked uh, very frequently with people who've actually done it. Can you tell us a little bit about the I've 1031 process? In the last Three year. of them. Okay. Yeah. But so, yeah. So I sold March 20th mm-hmm. of 2020, right when COVID was hitting. And I got an extension for my selection period because I don't know if you remember back yep. then, they extended those periods. Just a blanket extension through, I think, July, if I remember right. Yeah, until like July 15th. So yep. I had till July 15th now to select mm-hmm. a property. So we opened escrow, I think it was either the very end of June or the beginning mm-hmm. of July. The thing though, if if your your deadline didn't fall within a certain date period, it didn't get extended. So my close date didn't actually get extended. Oh, but my your selection, selection date period, did. Yeah. Okay. So you still had a 180 day total clock. You know, your yes. 45 day clock just got pushed. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. So I had a close by I think it was like September 18th, and we mm-hmm. closed this September 10th. So like wow. eight seven or eight days before, basically a week before I was supposed to close. So it was pretty tight. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, but I had, I I honestly, I wasn't going to get into a deal I didn't want to get into. And I already Mm -hmm. accepted the fact that I was, may have to pay this tax. Mm -hmm. Um, But the cool thing about it was it was a duplex that I lived in two out of the last five years with my wife. So I was able to write off 500,000 of that gain. And then the rest of that, I 1031. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't too bad of a deal if for some reason I got stuck. Yeah, that, that, that two of the last five has really helped. And I mean, most people who listen know I'm, I'm active duty military. There's a clause in the IRS laws that say if you've moved out of a house because of active duty service, they extend that two of the last five to two of the last 15. So every investment property I've had has been a property that I lived in, moved out of and rented. So I, I've been able to escape a lot of capital gains because of that, but uh, nice. Yeah, I know, right? You gotta have some perks of the job, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if if the government's gonna tell you to move every two or three years, the government can be nice enough to say, okay, well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna give you a little bit of benefit, you know, tax wise on the back end for that. But yeah, uh, I think that's fair. Yeah, for sure. So, so ten thirty one exchange, you've done it say three times in the last year. Uh, escaping basically a large tax bill on the sale of each one. Right, a couple million dollars in gains between the three. Nice. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, looking at, uh, wow, the highest bracket of income tax. <laughs> you saved a lot of money is is bottom line. Yeah. Have you ever computed how much money you, you saved through the 1031? When I say save, we know it's deferred, you know, technically, but- uh, Right, close to a million dollars. Wow. Nice. <laughs> 
Yeah. All day, every day. So, um, yeah. so yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good resource out there. There is, there's been some chatter that the new president is going to take that out. And part of his, his new tax plan was to remove the 1031 exchange, but you know, while it's in there, been around for a hundred years. They've tried to get rid of it time and time again, and they never succeed because they realize what economic benefit it has. And yeah. that's going to happen again. That's yeah. what I believe. You know, yeah. and here, here's the other thing. And I, I try not to get political on the podcast, but part of the reason is to close up loopholes for the, the uber wealthy. But the fact is, it's not the super wealthy that are taking advantage of the 1031. More often than not, it's, you know, the regular Joes who bought a house have owned yeah. it for five or eight years and are just moving up, you know? So anyway, yep. during, so we talked, we talked about, you know, finding it contract phase, you know, any, anything else on the buying contracting, raising capital be, before we move on? Yeah. Uh, one thing I'd like to discuss is so behind the property, there's a, a small little like stream or flood channel, whatever you want to call it. And when, when we went there, it was empty. It was dry because it was the summer when we were looking at the property and I didn't think much of it. But after being halfway into the, the process, the bank was like, hey, this property is in a flood zone mm-hmm. and we had to get flood insurance. Luckily, we had given quite a big budget to, for mm-hmm. our insurance. They were able to fit it within that budget that we originally have, but it was a surprise yeah. So my recommendation for your listeners is if you ever have a body of water of any kind, even if it's dry or doesn't seem like it could be an issue, just check. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a FEMA map online. It's really easy to check. It's free. And it's yeah. free. There's different levels of flood zones too mm-hmm. that create can affect the insurance and the cost of that. Yeah. And the other thing that that we found out, and, and we didn't do this till too late in the process on our, our first couple of deals is you know, while you're underwriting, you can talk with an insurance agent yep. and they can do a lot of this for you. I mean, they can do a real quick down and dirty. Here's what we anticipate your insurance is going to cost. And they're happy to do that for you for free because if they're providing you that service, once you close on it, you're likely to go with them anyway. So it is, it is something, it is a resource. As long as they there. give you the best quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and, and for the most part, they're competitive too, because a lot of these agents are just going out to the market and they're, they're mm-hmm. calling the national companies, you know, yeah, and, they're all going to the same people. Yeah. There's, there's five or six really big commercial carriers, carriers yeah. that most policies are are underwritten with. So definitely yeah, I would, looking I would say get a quote before you even get it under contract if possible. Mm-hmm. We got bit on on one of ours where you know we we didn't have a very good insurance estimate going in. This was also our first deal, and during the underwriting, when we finally got the insurance you know policy coming out, you know it was it was a substantial jump, and so that that really impacted. Fortunately, we had a lot of of meat on the bone and a lot of you know margin for error in our underwriting, but it, it closed that gap in our margin for error really quickly, and incidentally. You know, we own eight properties now and we were able to put them all under, you know, one single policy with a bunch of riders. And we, we, yeah, we ended up saving a lot of money. We ended up getting that money back as far as, uh, you know, what we had originally underwritten to underwritten to uh, versus where it's at right now. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the the un, the insurance part. Any big other big hurdles uh, before closing? 
I mean, just to get a good discovery. The property mm-hmm. used to have a pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a pool room with a sauna that we're now converting into a studio room. The sauna is mm-hmm. going to be the closet and some other storage utility closet. It's going to be the bathroom. So that's mm-hmm. another $650 a month in added rent, which mm-hmm. if you multiply that by a cap rate is over a hundred thousand in value yeah. right there, you know, straight yeah. out the gate. <laughs> yeah. That's huge. You know, adding, yeah. adding units, if, if you can put, you know, one more tenant in one more unit, that's, that's a big deal. It's going to, it's going to, it's one of those things that's asymmetric uh, returns is, you know, another big podcaster likes to, likes to call it, but yeah. Uh, and then uh, also you, if you have big one bedrooms, you could maybe turn them into two bedrooms, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that could be worth it if you don't have to do anything too structural one of the apartments we have has this weird shotgun style bedroom where it has two bedrooms, but you have to walk through the first bedroom to get to the second bedroom. Yeah, We we put up a wall and moved a door and turned it into a true two bedroom, which so you put a hallway in basically. Yeah. Essentially. Well, we actually turned the first bedroom in the shotgun into the living room and put yeah. a wall up and closed off the living room and turned, turned the former living room into a bedroom. So you know, now you, now you have two private bedrooms, you still have the living room, you still have the kitchen. And we were able to raise rents significantly just by closing that off. You know, we were previously marketing it as a one bedroom and that allowed us to market as a, as a true two bedroom. Uh, Not, not a lot of people are excited about the fact of, you know, having their roommate walk through their bedroom, you know, to get to theirs in the back, but definitely uh, not. But uh, all right. So What's what's next for you and and your team? I mean, we're we're looking for other deals. I think people aren't scared of COVID anymore and are acting like COVID doesn't exist and paying crazy prices. So it's been pretty challenging. And we were actually under contract on a deal that we had to unfortunately cancel because the owner misrepresented the size of the units by twenty five percent. Which, no big deal. Just 25%. Yeah, just yeah. 25%. Went yeah. from 800 square feet average to 600 square feet average, which yeah. is pretty huge. Yeah. that That's that's a decent size one bedroom to a really small one bedroom apartment is what that is. Yeah. So. Basically, we almost like studio size at that yeah. point. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. And we asked for a reduction. Obviously, he wouldn't budge. So, we unfortunately canceled and we lost... We're going to lose about 15 grand on that deal because of inspection fee. We had it. We did the appraisal. Mm-hmm. We didn't, the guy didn't go out to do the appraisal. But the thing is, even if you order it, they usually do all the work before they go to the inspection. Some costs. Still, right. Yeah. And, and then our attorney's fees. So you add that up, it's somewhere in the 12 to yeah. 15K range of just on cost. Yeah. And that's, that's why it's called risk capital, guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll, write it off on our taxes. There yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> yeah. another, another tax write off for you. All yeah. right. So, so one question that uh, I usually ask early on, but I didn't, you know, what's, what's your big burning? Why what's, what's your motivation for this? Obviously my family, I have a daughter, I have another daughter on the way. And so being able to provide a good life for them is important. I'm not trying to make the biggest portfolio of real estate out there. I just kind of have like my cash flow target goals. And mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about earlier, I, I want to build a house by a lake in a forest yep. and be able to be outdoors a lot and kind of mm-hmm. never sit on my butt and not do anything, but have the option of basically doing whatever I want when I want. So it's lifestyle. You want to be able to live a lifestyle that 
that you choose. Yeah. And I don't want to have a billion dollar portfolio because the, even if you have good systems in place, there's still a lot of stress that goes on. Still a lot that. of work. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Nice. So here, here's a question that, you know, I, I think is, is probably the, the best question to last the whole time. You know, what advice would you give an aspiring investor that's about 12 months behind you? Like I said, start raising money right away. Start mm-hmm. talking to people, building that up. Because the thing is, too, when you're raising money with people, they're not going to just write you a check right then and there. You have mm-hmm. to build a relationship with them over months. Also, on this raise, we realize like, holy crap, we're not going to be able to raise what we thought from the people that we know mm-hmm. and start opening it up to other people. And we're like, hey, we have this deal now. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> not, Wait not, a second. Who are you again? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you're asking me for all this money right now. <laughs> You know, so you have to build that relationship with them. Also with brokers, these brokers are getting calls all the time. If you really want to get in front of product, you need to go there and meet them in person and take them at a lunch and walk some properties with them. And then lastly, just look at everything with many different lenses and be creative because you're, this is a very competitive space and you got to set yourself apart in some ways. And like, we just talked about those things of adjusting units, adding units, adding bedrooms, all that kind of stuff is thinking outside the box and making things work that might not work to someone else looking at it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. A lot, a lot of golden nuggets there. And, you know, I think, I think everybody who gets their first deal, you know, across the finish line says something similar, start raising money, you know, because that ends up being, you know, the toughest part for a lot of people. But uh, all right. So, so last question for you, how can listeners learn more about you? I'm most active on Twitter, um, just JB2 investments on Twitter. You look up my name or you can go to our website, jb2investments.com. I also have an ebook about real estate and taxes, jb2investments.com forward slash lower. All right. Nice. And as always, we'll have all the links to those in the show notes. So if you're listening, you know, just tap, swipe and tap again, and it'll whisk you away to whichever one of those you you want to head out to. So, hey, JB, this has been great reconnecting and and talking with you again. Uh, It's been far too long. I appreciate you coming on the show today, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. And one last thing too, you know, if there's any aspiring investors out there that just want to have a chat or send me an email. I'm, I'm always happy to help as well. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.